So today as we uh, kind of kick off our Advent season, uh, we've chosen a, a theme that is obviously just um, just somewhat lighthearted, but also so profound at the same time that we uh, need a little Christmas. And it you know, just comes out of that uh, popular song. It's not a, uh, a carol that we would normally sing in church, but uh, we need a little Christmas. It's not just because it's 2020 or just because we're Christians or because it's fun, uh, but the reality is... Um, Inside of the message of Christmas is this aspect of what we really needed, um, we found in Jesus Christ and in his coming. But I particularly like that first word, we, because Christmas, I think, is all about answering the question, who? Um, more so even than what or where, uh, Christmas is about who. Christmas is about uh, God, who has always been personal, becoming as personable, personable as he possibly could be in taking the form of a baby, the most uh, frail, fragile form he could possibly take uh, in order to enter into our world. And it's uh, interesting to me that the Christmas story, yes, is filled with with places and events and movement, um, but it's also primarily filled with people. People like shepherds, people like, you know, wise men who come from a distant land, uh, you know, like Mary and Joseph and all sorts of people that surround the Christmas story. But where I want to go today is to almost take you back uh, to the beginning of the Christmas story because the Christmas story begins long before an angel appears to Mary or to Joseph. The Christmas story goes back before that, and I think it underscores for us the reality that uh, the reason we have Advent, four weeks that lead up to Christmas, similar to the reason that we have seven weeks that lead up to Easter, is that there is something very vital that takes place inside of our lives regularly, year after year, where we have the opportunity to prepare for the reality that we already know the answer of, but we we prepare for the new dimensions of what that reality means inside of our faith. And so, for instance, in the weeks that lead up to Easter, we think about the cross, we talk about the cross, we revisit aspects of sin and redemption and what it means that Jesus would be you know, that ultimate sacrifice and the very centerpiece of our lives. In the weeks that lead up to Christmas, we, we tell the, the stories again and we think about Mary and Joseph and the manger and, you know, and, and we read out of Isaiah and we do the things that we do. We, you know, talk about candles of hope and joy and, and peace and love. And we do that because hopefully each and every year there's an opportunity for growth to take place inside of our understanding and inside of our walk in that which we already know to be true. Christian growth, a lot of times for me, is not, you know, new arenas that are opened up, but taking steps of growth inside of realities that I already know to be true. That there's a new wrinkle, there's a new application, there's there's something that, that takes a deeper root inside of my life this year than maybe in years past. And so I would argue that, you know, all the work is in the preparation. And that in these weeks that lead up to Christmas, it's more than just baking Christmas cookies or buying gifts or making preparations for the day, but also what preparations does God want to make in you that Jesus' residence inside of your heart takes on a greater meaning this year even than it did last year. And so I was thinking about this that this week, and when I first uh, moved up to Sharptown, and um, it was in 2002, and I am not very good with my hands. I'm not handy. I'm not uh, craftsman-y at all. And uh, when I got there, I didn't have an office. They were kind of renovating offices. And um, 
Doug Smith, who many of you know, uh, took me downstairs into the, the old, smelly, kind of old kitchen there at the church. And there was a wooden get desk that was, uh, let's just say it had potential. But underneath all that potential were years of stains and varnish and, you know, just, you know, more stain on top of stain. And, you know, just it needed some work. And um, I think he set me up because he said, you can go buy a cheap desk if you want, or you can refinish this and have something that you'll really be proud of. And I said, sure, I can refinish the desk. And in my mind, I was thinking I would uh, sand for 30 minutes, and I would throw a coat of stain on, and I would come back and do something else, and it'd be done in an hour. But um, Doug had worked with a woodworker when he was in seminary, and uh, it's one of the ways he got, you know, paid for seminary and put himself through. And so um, I felt a little bit after an hour or so into this project, a little bit like Danielson in Karate Kid, where I was going to be spending a lot of time, you know, like sanding the floor and painting the fence, and, you know, that there was some leadership lesson that was probably trying to be conveyed inside of my life, because I spent hours down in that basement sanding and scraping and preparing, and just when I thought it was done, he would say it wasn't quite done yet. And all the work really was in the prep work, so when it finally came time to put the coat of stain on, there was something there for it to take to and to look good, and it was all in the prep work. And I think about that often when, you know, we celebrate Christmas and Easter every year, and there's something vitally important. Our lives are marked by what took place on those two bookends of Jesus' life, but also those two um, really just foundational events inside of human history. But we also have the gift of the preparation, of preparing for what that reality means inside of our lives. Because I don't know about you, but I don't really think as much about the me message of Christmas after December 26th. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just the way that our society is wired, that we're kind of on to the next thing. So I think it's worth us taking time to think about uh, that this year. And so again, to, to do so, we're going to think through Christmas through the lens of people, because Christmas is personal, Christmas is relational, that God has a face, that God moved into the neighborhood, uh, that God has a name, that God has an address, that God became flesh. Inside of the Gospels, the Gospel of John uh, is written years later and focuses mainly theological. And so for John, he begins at the beginning by saying, uh, at the very beginning, was the Word. So Jesus was present at creation. And then, then the Word became flesh and made his dwelling place amongst us. That's how John begins. The Gospel of Mark just jumps right into the ministry of Jesus, and you get very little, if anything, about Christmas. But it's Matthew and it's Luke that give us the Christmas story. But they both don't begin with, on an evening in Bethlehem a long, long time ago, both of them begin by going back even behind the story into the lives of people to show us how Christmas came about. And that's where I want us to begin as well in thinking through this. So inside of Matthew chapter 1, uh, he begins with the genealogy. Matthew jumps right in. He's writing to a Jewish audience. And so he jumps right into a genealogy, and he begins with Abraham. Just a little trivia for you. Luke, when he gives his genealogy, uh, he kind of begins and works backwards, but he goes all the way back to Adam. But Matthew begins with Abraham, and, and he begins to walk down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
down through the patriarchs and, and then the kings and down through the prophetic age and then all the way down to Joseph and Mary. But I wonder if you're Matthew and you have a limited size of parchment, you know that you can't write an entire book like we would think of a book today. Why would you take an entire chapter or almost an entire chapter and devote to genealogy when you could have given us another half chapter on the resurrection or another half chapter on the transfiguration or uh, you know, a, a miracle maybe that you left out? But instead, Matthew goes through the time that his way that he wants to tell us the Christmas story is to begin from the beginning. I want to read a few verses for you, and uh, it's not beginning with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and you know we could you know, all appreciate that aspect of the story, but I think there's something that, that caught my attention that I think should catch your attention as well, uh, beginning in verse number 5 of chapter 1. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So again, this is jumping right in, and by the way, it's two weeks in a row that I've kind of just jumped right into a list of people and, and things like that. We're not going to read the whole genealogy today. But in, in telling through things, if, if you're Matthew and you're you realize the importance to begin with Abraham and go down through, wouldn't you think it's okay to skip, you know, some generations or skip a couple of episodes that we'd rather not talk about? But Matthew jumps down through and, and he gives us this genealogy person by person and at times with some extra detail, like who the mother was or some of the other details. And right in chapter 5, he includes some things that maybe I would have left out. Or maybe I would have just glossed over or made reference to but kept on going but instead he gives us some added detail into the story. For a Jewish audience, this is how Matthew tells us the Christmas story. So the first one we talked about, we don't know much about Salmon, but, but Salmon, uh, as we, what we do know about him, is that he's married to a woman named Rahab. It's interesting to me that Rahab is part of the Christ, Christmas story, and Matthew could have just left out who the mother of Boaz happened to be. Now you'll recall in the early part of the book of Joshua when the people of God are about to enter into the promised land and you know before they cross over the Jordan River and enter into the land and before the walls of Jericho fall Joshua sends two spies into the land and they go in particular to inspect the walls of Jericho which is the biggest city there. Two spies enter in and they find uh, lodging at the home of Rahab, who it says is a harlot or a prostitute. The king of Jericho actually asks Rahab, we heard that spies have come, would you hand them over to us? And she hides them and she gives them safe passage and she makes up an excuse for them. Do you know later on in the early part of the book of Joshua, the instructions are, God is gonna, going to destroy the, the walls of Jericho and everyone in it, but we have a promise that we made to Rahab and to her entire family, she is spared. And so you know the story, they, they enter in and they march around and they blow their music, you know, their trumpets and they play their musical instruments and the walls, you know, come down and then they go and they find Rahab and her, and her parents and her extended family and she is spared inside of Jericho. Apparently in the midst of that story, there's a man, man named Salmon who is an Israelite who comes into the land 
and at some point is looking for a wife and meets Rahab, and they fall in love, and they have a baby, and they name, name him Boaz. Now, Boaz, we, we know, is an honorable man because, as we'll see in just a couple of moments, he steps in and uh, marries Ruth and does the honorable thing for this widow who's in his midst. And I wonder, where did Boaz learn how to live as a man of honor? Where did Boaz learned what it means to be a person of his word, to be somebody who steps into a difficult situation and is not afraid to do hard things. Maybe he learned it through, through, through Salmon, and, and I wish we know more about Salmon because, you know, how is it that he would make the choice and, and take the initiative to marry this one who, who yes, every, everybody appreciated, you know, the fact that, that she made a way for the spies to safely get in and get out of Jericho, but for Salmon to put a ring on her finger and to marry her. And we don't know the story, but it does say that Rahab remained in the land for the rest of her life. And I wonder if there was enough faith, maybe in when she met the spies, or maybe what she heard about the God of Israel, or maybe you know the stories that she had heard, if there was a glimmer of faith, or if it was even just out of desperation, She said, I wonder if there could be a new start for a person like me. And so she helps the spies out, and her life is spared. And she's given a place among the people of Israel. And she meets a man by the name of Salmon, and they have a baby. And they raise that baby to be a man after God's own heart and a person who seeks after God. And you don't have the Christmas story, according to Matthew, without Rahab the prostitute, who wasn't even an Israelite. Then he goes on and he tells us about Boaz and Boaz, uh, whose wife was Ruth. And if you know the story of, of Ruth, you know that uh, in the time, time of the judges when uh, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, loses both her husband and both of her sons, she says to her two daughter-in-laws, girls, why don't you just go and try to find a new life for yourself? I can't provide for you. I am just an old widow at this point. Uh, go back to your homeland, you know, find husbands, have babies, have a good life, don't worry about me. The one daughter-in-law says, okay, nice to know you, Ruth, we'll see you later. And she leaves quickly, but Ruth, and you know, know this passage, perhaps the most famous part of the book of Ruth, she says, no, where you go, I will go. And your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And so Ruth, you know, journeys back with Naomi, back to Bethlehem, back to her homeland. And she makes, you know, her living there, and she stays close to Naomi. And eventually she meets Boaz, and Boaz does the honorable thing and and serves as a kinsman redeemer and marries her and takes care of her and her family. And you don't have the Christmas story without a man named Boaz, who probably learned some things from his mom who received a fresh start and whose wife was a foreigner, a Moabite woman, but was accepted amongst the people of God. Well, Boaz and Ruth, they have a child. They call him Obed. And Obed has a child, and he calls him Jesse. And Jesse has a bunch of kids, and the youngest is named David. And one day the the prophet Samuel comes to, to, to Jesse's house, and he says, one of your kids is going to be the next king, and this is a glorious day for Jesse. And he brings him out, and he's, he's sure, based on all he knows to be true of the culture, that it's got to be the firstborn. 
And if it's not the firstborn, then maybe it's the second or the third or the fourth. But he doesn't even invite David to come out of the field because certainly it's not the youngest. And you know the rest of the story that, nope, not him, not him, not him. Do you have any more sons? David comes. Yes, yes, it's him. Then you have, the, you know, David's slaying the giant. David, who is named a man after God's own heart, who is the second king of Israel, who's beloved, who is a towering figure. But yet the other thing you know about David is he also has some not great moments inside of his faith. Do you know when Matthew wants to describe how we got to Christmas? It's not surprising that he includes David. After all, one of Jesus' nicknames would be the son of David. One of the things that's promised to David is that his household will never end. It's not surprising that David's in there. What is surprising is Matthew gives us a little bit further detail. After telling us about Rahab and telling us about Ruth, he says, and David and whose son Solomon, by the way, and his mom was Uriah's wife. I wonder if the reason he doesn't say Bathsheba, but instead Uriah's wife is to point out even David, who we put up here on a pedestal, we're not talking about this David, we're talking about this David. And Matthew gives us the Christmas story, and he says, David, and by the way, it was the son not from Michal, Saul's daughter, not a son from Abigail, who is, you know, just that wonderful woman who happened to be married to, you know, the you know, that, that scoundrel Nabal, and, you know, David steps in. But in the lineage of Jesus is Solomon, whose mother is Bathsheba, who was Uriah's wife until David had an affair with her. And then when she was pregnant, sent Uriah out to the front lines where he was killed. I wonder what Matthew's, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, of course, to what Matthew's trying to say. That when we go all the way back to the promise of Abraham and we track through how we get to Christmas and that God had a plan for his people and that God stepped in with, with the work of redemption. And let me tell you how we got there from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and all the way down through, even including people like Rahab and Ruth and David and who was married to Uriah's wife and Solomon and on down through and through. I think right there on page number one of the New Testament, we get an insight into who Christmas is for. And it's a simple word, everybody. Everybody needs it. No one is disqualified from it. Everybody is invited to it. Christmas is for everyone. Even in how we got there. It's interesting to me that you don't have the birth of Jesus without Rahab's faith, despite her past. You don't get to the birth of Jesus without Ruth's faithfulness and trust in God and Boaz standing beside her. You don't get to the birth of Jesus without God's redemption inside the work of David and a woman who used to be another man's wife. You know, when I, I think through that, there are some things that run through the entire genealogy that Matthew gives us, that God always keeps his promises, that he always keeps his promises, that God is faithful, that your mistakes do not disqualify you from being used by God, and your inadequacies 
your deficiencies, the things that you wish you could take back, the regrets that you have inside of life, do not diminish God's plan for your life. And I think it's important to start here because if we start with a nice decorated church and we start with, you know, the angelic voice that appears to Mary in Nazareth, or we, we start with just the, the shepherds, you know, go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born and Christmas feels nostalgic and it feels happy and it feels wonderful, but it almost doesn't communicate just how real and earthy and messy the work of redemption is. Because while the extravagant love of God breaks through, it comes through and it breaks through into messy situations and inside the lives of imperfect people. And that's the message of Christmas. And so you come to the end of the Old Testament. And just before there are 400 years of silence, 400 years where there's no prophet inside of Israel, 400 years where, you know, Babylonians, you know, come in, and, and then, you know, there's Persians, and there's Syrians, and there's Greeks, and then the Romans, there's an enemy flag hovering above the city of Jerusalem for 600 years and longer. But in the midst of that time where it seems like God had forgotten his people, where God was silent, where the darkness loomed large, creates the perfect situation for Jesus to come and to enter in. And so at the end of the Old Testament, inside of Malachi chapter 4, there's a promise that, that's given that it says, See, I will send my prophet Elijah. Now this is not resending Elijah so he were going to be resurrected or reincarnated but one like Elijah in the spirit of Elijah, I will send my prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day that the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And so, in other words, God wants to say that even just before I'm about to do something great and awesome that you can't understand or comprehend, I'm going to send you another prophet. And so in these 400 years of darkness, the people were waiting and hoping, and it seemed like God was delaying and delaying. And then you come to two other individuals, and this is how Luke begins his gospel. Luke doesn't begin with, on a starry night in Bethlehem, but begins, begins even back a year and a half or so before. Luke says, in the time of, king, of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. This is what we get, you know, is the introduction, Luke's introduction to the Christmas story. You know, the first angel that appears in the New Testament is not to Mary and it's not to Joseph, but it's to Zechariah. And Zechariah, although he's a priest, he's one of 300 inside of a, a rotation of priests. He's just an ordinary man. At this point, he is getting up in years. We know that he is righteous, but they have no kids. And I think Luke wants to tell us both things to say. A lot of times people would associate in that culture that if you did not have kids, you must have done something wrong. And so, as hard as it is for any couple to not have kids in the first century, it was even a little bit tougher because somehow communicated in that was a statement about your character. 
Certainly what was communicated in that was the statement about your future and about you know, offspring that would carry on your name and your wealth and your legacy. And so I wonder, just like there is a people, Isaiah says, who are walking in darkness, who are about to see a great light, a nation that's been occupied by en- enemy countries for hundreds of years, no prophet for 400 years, Zechariah and Elizabeth's life probably looks like a microcosm of what of all Israel looks like. They were righteous and doing the, doing the right things and living the right way, and yet God seemed silent. While they were still maintained their belief in God and their faith in God, it didn't seem like God really heard their prayers or was responsive to their needs. And just like Matthew's genealogy, I think that's the perfect situation for Christmas to happen. Well, if you know the rest of the story, you can read it in the first chapter of Luke. Uh, Zechariah, this particular year, his you know number is called, and he gets the chance to go in on a particular day and offer sacrifice. Now, this is not going into the Holy of Holies where the high priest went one day a year. This is on a daily basis. Um, inside of the temple itself, you could never enter the the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, but inside of the holy place, a priest would go in once a day to offer sacrifice. And so on this particular day, Zechariah is tapped that he's going to be the guy. And this must have been a great moment for him. And so he goes in to offer sacrifice. And there he hears from God, an angel appears, Gabriel appears. And he first of all says, fear not, because that's what it seems like angels always say, um, which tells us probably the picture of an angel is not just this you know, bright, friendly, happy, Casper the Friendly Ghost type of figure that's more like something that, you know, causes you to step back. He says, fear not, for God has heard your prayer. I don't know that it would surprise me much if the first message I got from a heavenly being was, Mike, God hears your your prayer. Because I think we've been accustomed to believing, you know, that Jesus hears our prayers, and that when we pray, he hears and he answers. But if you live in a context where there's been 400 years of silence, where you and your wife have wanted to have kids and have tried to have kids and you couldn't, where you're doing the right things day in and day out, and it doesn't seem like God is responding, what a message of hope that is that God has heard your prayer. And Elizabeth's going to have a baby. Now, I don't know if the angel was referring to is Zechariah's prayer for a child. It could be, and that's the most likely possibility. Or if he prayed for something else, for the redemption of Israel, or for, you know, to see the glory of God, or whatever his prayer might be. We don't know the exact word of that, but God said, I've heard your prayer, and I'm about to do something, and even your wife, Elizabeth, is about to have a baby. Zechariah displays some unbelief, and, you know, as as far as what he's just heard from God, and You know, so God says, you're not going to be able to speak for the next nine months. I wonder so much if that's a punishment or if that's the silence that the world has been living in for hundreds of years. Now what's going to draw attention to the coming of Jesus more than anything else is the fact that Zechariah, even himself, is silent. So about 10 or 11 months later, Elizabeth has a baby. They name him John, and John the Baptist becomes the, the predecessor for Jesus inside of his ministry. 
Most of Jesus' disciples were first John's disciples. And it's interesting to me that God spends hundreds of years, thousands of years preparing for the birth of Christ, but even inside of the specific event, nine months before Jesus is born, God appears to Mary. Six months before that, he appears to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Months before that, he was creating the right opportunities where Zechariah would be in the temple that day. And we often get a little bit concerned if we don't hear from God right away inside of our prayer request. That I ask it today and I want you to answer it tomorrow. But even if the coming of Jesus took hundreds of years to come about, even if the birth of Jesus itself was, was planned for 15, 16, 18 months in advance, what does that say then about God's timing versus our timing and God's ability to keep his promise even when we can't always see it or understand what he's doing? So for a people who are waiting, God sends light. In the midst of silence, God speaks with a loud voice of love and compassion. For a people who felt isolated, God says, I'm going to draw near to you. You know that God hears you. Just like he heard Zechariah, God hears your prayer. And I wonder if when we look down through, and we've not even gotten to the, to the announcement, let alone the birth of Jesus yet, and that's where we're going to go for the next couple of weeks. But even when you go from Genesis all the way up to Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1, you get a sense for what God was trying to do to prepare his people for Christmas. And it reminds me, you don't have the Christmas story without Rahab. You don't have the Christmas story without Ruth. You don't have the Christmas story without David, and maybe more importantly, Bathsheba. We don't have the Christmas story without Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist. Now, am I saying that God is limited to whatever these individuals did? No, we know that God is able to work sometimes even in spite of the decisions of his people. But it says that if God is able to step in and use this people with all their inadequacies and flaws and mistakes and all the things that could have disqualified them. What does that say then about who Christmas is for and what Christmas can do inside of any person that you meet? Because there's no person you meet that is outside of where the grace of God could touch and transform. There's no person outside of Christmas either because of what they've done or what they've said or what they've not done or not said. But Christmas becomes the event where the playing field is leveled. And God draws near. And it's not because of what we've done or what we've earned or measured up, but because of who he is and the initiative he's taken. Let me boil it all down and say this. When I think about who experiences Christmas best or most easiest, three things come to mind. And I think it's right inside of the Christmas story. God often is recognized best by the ordinary the humble, and the expectant. The ordinary, it's not the, the princes and the kings and the rich and the powerful that recognize him, but it's lowly shepherds and it's outsiders and it's people who have messed up and made mistakes and it's people who are at the end of their rope and people who are frustrated and feel like they haven't heard from God and they're in the perfect position to be not only the recipients of Christmas, but even the vessels of Christmas inside of the Old and the New Testament. The humble 
The people who recognize that they have a need, that they don't have it all together and have it all figured out. And people who expect the fact that maybe, just maybe, God can move in the midst of my circumstances. And so this Christmas, maybe in a new way, maybe for the first time, maybe in a revolutionary way, we have the opportunity to prepare for the coming of Jesus. You have an opportunity to to prepare, as the hymn Joy to the World says, you know, let every heart prepare him room. You have the opportunity for the grace of God and the reign of God to grow larger inside of your life this year than it ever has before. Christmas is personal. Christmas is relational. Christmas is for you, and Christmas reminds us that God draws near. He He is a God who is with us and a God who is for us. Let's pray together. God, I'm mindful today that if you can use people who didn't have the best past or didn't have the most skills or weren't at the top of the food chain, Lord, that that's just not the cute story of Christmas, but that is the pattern of often how you work. That even Paul would remark that you often use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And so God, it means this morning that if there's places within us that feel like they are undone, if there are parts of our lives that we feel like we wish that we could take back or undo, if there are places where we feel like we don't measure up, And we're in the perfect place to receive Christmas in a new way this year. Father, it also means, though, that for people who now find ourselves churched and maybe have walked with you for a number of years, Lord, we live in a messy world where a number of other people have messed up and made mistakes and fallen short and are at the end of their rope. Maybe this is the perfect year for us to share Christmas with those who need it most. So God, in the midst of all the preparation and all the festivities and even all the weirdness that 2020 is and brings with regard to Christmas, God, I pray that you would make yourself known to us and that you would make yourself known through us over these days and weeks ahead. We ask and we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.